Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I'm glad you're with me, especially given, come on, we are living in an age of profound change, and it is hugely challenging for our personal finances. And this week was no different, as the market showed more of the strain from rising interest rates, but maybe more accurately, I think it shows the downward pressure from unraveling of the massive debt buildup. That's the aspect that I have little confidence that the central banks can actually forecast the fallout as people unwind their debt positions, and I think that's going to jeopardize their hope for a soft landing. And we're going to talk more about that with both top economist John Johnson coming up and trading desk uh, Victor Adair. I'll also talk with Ozzy Jurek about a major announcement made this week in China by Xi Jinping that could have potentially, at least potentially, profound impact on Canada's real estate market, especially out in the Vancouver area. And I think you're going to want to stay tuned for that. And when I was writing the quote of the week, it's by President Barack Obama, it had me humming the tune, you know, the old Tears for Fears tune, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Well, I think his attitude actually gets to the heart of the big government agenda, including censorship, and why not? It looks like they think they're smarter than the rest of us. And speaking of hit songs, this week's Goofy is clear and unequivocal, the taxpayer's version of Dire Straits' Money for Nothing. I mean, I, I, you're not even going to believe it, so I'll, I'll leave it till then. But first, a Freedom of Information request by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation revealed that Prime Minister Trudeau was eyeing something like a $60 billion wealth tax. Now, it's not a new idea. The NDP's Jagmeet Singh has been pushing for that for a number of years. It's one of his priorities. And the target's to go after assets, from homes to businesses to investments that women and men have accumulated after they've, they've paid dozens of other taxes, including income tax, sales tax, property tax, and they've taken that and made it with what's left over. But no one should be surprised. Come on, the biggest problem for government is financial, especially in light of their goal to dramatically expand the size and scope of government. Things like Pharmacare, an example. Of course, that's what they have been doing. I mean, government now supports much of the media as another example, $600 million media bailout fund. And plus, there's other business support programs. But it's not just pandemic-related. As the Parliamentary Budget Office recently reported, the federal government spent or plans to spend $576 billion since the start of the pandemic. I mean, it's a number so big, it's incomprehensible. But what's important to notice, of that $204 billion, had nothing to do with the pandemic. But the point is, governments need money, they want money, so the question is, where are they going to get it? And that's an important question. Well, politically, they know that the majority of Canadians support higher taxes as long as they're not the ones that have to pay it. So, for the majority of us, the so-called wealth tax actually fits that criteria. And I suspect there won't be much concern that has been ineffective in jurisdictions where it have been tried. You know, as one of the most respected economists in the country, Jack Mintz, points out, out of the 12 countries that had a wealth tax in 1990, only four still do. And they collect only small amounts of revenue. And just a little FYI, projected tax revenue measures like this virtually never realize what the government says they will for the simple reason that when taxes rise, people change their behavior. I mean, they could move jurisdictions as they did in France when President Francois Hollande raised the top income tax rate to 75%. Well, people just moved. And the same thing happened in the UK a few years earlier when they had a high income surtax. I mean, come on, this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone given how we all know people who literally, I mean, there's tens of thousands in Canada who actually cross the border into the US for cheaper gas, which is only possible because they have lower gas taxes at the pump. So come on, if we're talking big money, let's not pretend we'd be surprised if people change their behavior. But I'll leave the unintended consequences of implementing new taxes and focus on one other aspect that is so rarely mentioned in the country. But I think it should be, especially when politicians like Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Singh, and many others want a bigger piece of the assets of someone's business, which is inevitably the focus of a wealth tax. I mean, inevitably, the people who propose a wealth tax have never put themselves on the line, saved the money, started a business, took the risk, and put in the hours to make a go of it. But presto, they want more money from people who have. The vast majority of politicians don't have an inkling about what it takes, that you have to first save the money to start a business, and you've got to put in those long hours and the stress. I mean, come on, especially over the last two years. 
when literally tens of thousands of business owners struggled just to have their businesses survive. And this is at the same time, by the way, members of parliament gave themselves a raise. In fact, three raises, starting April 1st, 2020, right through to this past April 1st. It doesn't mean they're not wonderful people. I'm sure they are. But it may explain why they're so casual about pushing for a wealth tax by anyone who's managed to accumulate the assets, including in their home or especially in their business, and they invest in Canada. I mean, for the most part, at least excluding, come on, those few businesses that they're well collected and they connected rather and they just parlay political connections into big money. No, for the most part, men and women work their tail off, face the ups and downs to make their business a success and hence accumulate assets after paying significant other taxes every step of the way. But somehow these politicians want more. And by the way, if wealth tax proponents are not sure about the ups and downs of owning a business, maybe they should get out in the community. Go ask a restaurateur, a conference organizer, live events company, hotelier, tourism operator. I mean, the list is so long. What the last couple of years has been be uh, been like. I mean, what? Sleepless nights, churning in the stomach when you're not sure if you can pay the bills or a loan payment, or maybe you're going to be forced to lay somebody off. Now, I appreciate it's more difficult when you're a politician who hasn't missed a paycheck. No. They have a secure pension. I mean, they sit there and they've got extended benefits, including dental, that 90% of us can't even dream about. I mean, the push for a wealth tax begs, hey, when is enough enough for government? What is government and our fair share of what somebody else has earned? You know, Thomas Mulcair, former head of the NDP, he had an answer. He said taking over 50% of what someone has earned is no longer taxation, it's confiscation. But on the way to the great reset agenda of ever bigger government, Mr. Mulcair's attitude is considered now populist extremism. Hey, before I go on with the show, let me just remind you that, uh, well, not this part. I'm chairman of the Special Olympics Golf Tournament. But, uh, you know, in the past, our Money Talks audience has been great supporters. We have many of our sponsors who come to the World Outlook Conference have certainly helped out in a big way. Many people on the show, whether it's Aussie or Michael and Rob Levy at Border Gold, uh, certainly Victor is, is very committed. And, of course, the whole Money Talks gang with Grant Longhurst and Nina are big, uh, big participants trying to make a difference for people with intellectual disabilities. And, you know, there was an interesting story this week on the news about a six-year-old boy uh, on the autism spectrum who had a birthday party and only one person came. And his father shared the story. But what was so gratifying is how many people reached out to try and, you know, make a difference there. And that's exactly what Special Olympics does, by the way, that if you talk to our athletes throughout the country, throughout the province, throughout the world, actually, they'll tell you that Special Olympics is where their friends are. It's their community. It's where, of course, there's fun to be had and there's all sorts of other valuable lessons to be learned about just seriously doing your best. But uh, when I heard that story, I thought, isn't that great? You know, people do give a darn. And that's why I'm just talk talking to you about it right now, because I think our audience has proven in the past they care. But so, yes, uh, we're going to have an online auction and I'm going <laughs> to warn you right now. I'm going to let you know about it because I'm sure many people want to bid and help out that way. And maybe even, you know, somebody who could donate an auction item, which would be fabulous. So maybe it's a family member or a friend. and You think, hey, that might work. And they'll want to do that. I want to give them the opportunity. So all you have to do is to go to Mike's Money mikesmoneytalks.ca and uh, we've got the information there for you but when I heard that story about the six-year-old I thought I'd share more that yeah yeah I could use the help me as chairman come on the event's got to be good or I need help to make it good need your help but thanks No shortage of stories when we talk about what's been going on in the investment markets. I mean, it's been remarkable. But one of the areas we haven't spent a ton on is what's happened in the crypto space. And, of course, there's been the disaster with Luna and Tether and all that stuff. But it's also the role of crypto. I want to bring Mike Levy in for that right now. You know, Mike, you've been all along saying, gee, I think that gold still maintains its sort of place as a stabilizer in someone's portfolio. You know, as you've said, it's not you're not looking to trade it. You're not looking to really to make a lot of money on it. It was there as a safe haven. It looks like that's been pretty true in the last while. 
Well, it has, Mike, and uh, gold has come off uh, in the last couple, three months, uh, as have a lot of the investment uh, portfolios, whether you've got stocks or whether you've got the cryptos or whether you've got, and you can go across real estate is selling off, but crypto was also heralded as being a safe haven. Uh, it was the new gold. It was going to take the place. Gold was for centuries past, and uh, I, I always just push back on the fact that it was a safe haven. I'm not commenting on whether it's a good investment, a bad investment, or whether people should or should not buy it. I was questioning the reasoning for buying it, and I just couldn't swallow that. You and I have talked about it. I've talked about it to other people. Hey, look, gold's only up to 2,000 or 2,200, and Bitcoin's up to 69,000. So how can you tell me? Well, I'm not looking for gold to go to 3000 or 3500 It has a specific reason for buying it. There's a direction you want to go when you want to buy it. You want that safe haven. You want that store of value. And gold is just doing that. It's plodding along. Sure, it's given up 10% in the last couple, three months, but it hasn't given up from 69000 to 27000 well, and again, it doesn't, uh, I agree with you. I'm not commenting on crypto itself. I mean, also, obviously there were some problems there. It's blockchain. New technologies always go through these sort of washout periods. So it's going to be revisited. We're just, as you say, focusing on it as the, in quotes, safe haven. And, uh, you know, it behaved more like a tech stock, you know, in, in that way. And, and, you know, it reminds me of the Internet going back some years. It reminds me of Amazon going back. So it's not about the future of it. It's, it's a bit of a washout period at this time that, as they say, we've seen in other technologies or other areas. But it is interesting that gold, I felt, did very well just sort of holding on. While some gold people were very disappointed it didn't perform more with inflation, but at the same time, it also didn't participate fully in the decline of the market. So it did sort of maintain that sort of uh, stabilizer for people's portfolios. And, and I think that something that should be understood, at least given serious thought, is that gold is not really a hedge against inflationary times like we have right now. Uh, geopolitical, you bet. You take a look at what happened the last six or eight months or last year, uh, or, or even going back a couple of years during the pandemic, um, gold performed exactly as it should have. But Mike, gold is just it's not going to be have that volatility. It's serving its purpose. And if it's down 10% in the last couple, three months, that's not bad, but it's doing what it's supposed to do. I, I would say with the inflation side, too, is that I've always felt that was a, a, you know, a mistake to make such a direct correlation between when inflation's up, so would gold be. I think there's too much historical evidence that's not the case, whereas opposed to this, where I think there's tremendous evidence and correlation when you start losing confidence in a currency. Like, can you imagine the bull market that gold's been in in terms of Argentinian pesos, you know, or it's been in Turkish lira? You know, it's had a magnificent run. That's where you see that impact, uh, that it's far more uh, related to protecting you against uh, a currency debasement than it is against sort of inflation. And I know there's a relationship there, of course. But, you know, we... we we visualize gold in U.S. dollars, even though we live in Canada. Uh, when I gave all my seminars and talks, I always put up charts on gold in different major currencies. So if you're living in Europe right now, gold's performing marvelously. If you're looking at, as you say, in India or in, in parts of Asia, yeah, in parts of Europe and Eastern Europe. I mean, we've talked about it, Mike. Look at gold in rubles. I mean, my gosh, and uh, and you do the other ones, the one-offs, the Argentina, Argentina or Iran or, yeah, but just take a look at uh, uh, areas of the world that we can relate to, uh, Great Britain, Europe, uh, Korea, um, Japan, and gold. Boy, if you live there, you've had gold in a huge bull market, but also protecting you. Well, it's interesting when you do talk the ruble, it had that huge dip. And at that point, you would have liked to convert. But now, of course, it's gone way up. 
you know, uh, against the U.S. dollar. So your point about you have to look at different measures, uh, different currency measures, I'm sorry, uh, you know, when you look around. And it's, 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 its role, though, has been to protect against that kind of debasement of a currency. Uh, obviously, we'll have time to look at that, but I think it's just an interesting observation as we come outside of what's happened in the in investment markets. And, Mike, as I say, uh, you can always check bordergold.com, bordergold.com, Easy for me to say, obviously, bordergold.com, and you can get the daily <laughs> comment from Rob Levy on there. It's a fascinating time, obviously, in all the investment markets. Uh, Mike, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, one of the features of political discourse that I'm sure we've all noticed is the disrespect, the growing disrespect for people with opposing views. It doesn't matter which side of the spectrum. Today's environment uh, is reminiscent of, I think, McCarthyism in the 50s when persecution of suspected communist sympathizers was the norm. Today, the same sentiments are manifested in the cancel culture where perceived transgressions, I mean, even questioning, questioning the establishment progressive agenda is a firing offense, certainly reason enough for online bullying, which brings me to the quote of the week. You know, it's interesting, while Hillary Clinton was more blatant with her description of those who disagreed with her politically as deplorable, President Barack Obama's more subtle, stating that the people who disagreed with him or the progressive agenda, were simply misinformed, uneducated, in quotes. Mainly people, they're just misinformed, or they're too busy. They're trying to get their kids to school. They're working. They just don't have enough information, or they're not professionals at sorting out all the information that's out there. And so our political process gets skewed. But if you guys give them good information, their instincts are good, and they will make good decisions. And the president has the bully pulpit to give them good information. And a quote. You know what? That's the same way that Canada's prime minister declares himself the judge of what's acceptable and unacceptable when it comes to views. President Obama sees himself as the arbiter of good information. These are the attitudes that fuel today's growing push for censorship. In Canada, social media censorship in Bill C-11 and in the U.S. with the Government Dis Disinformation Bureau. As the Wall Street Journal editorial board points out in quotes, you know, one of the great ironies of political life in the 2020s is that the people most exercised about the spread of false information are frequently the peddlers of it. End of quote. I've been looking forward to talking to John Johnson for ages on this. He's been busy, though, I guess so, because he's chief strategist for Davis Ray. John, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Michael. Happy to be here. I, I don't even know where to start because there's so much stuff, but I'm going to come to the question that most people have. We're in a rising interest rate environment. The worry is, will they raise rates sufficiently to kill the economy, or let's say more than slow it down, you know, that sort of teeter-totter, all of a sudden you're over the edge, you've hurt the housing market too much, other sectors back off, and presto, now you've got a recession. Where do you stand on that? Well, right now, like, history suggests a very poor track record on the part of central banks in raising interest rates. You know, there's been a few instances where they raise short-term interest rates after, you know, holding them down for a period of time, where there's no recession. Um, 1994-95 was one. Uh, I think in absence of the pandemic, COVID, it would have been the case that 2017-2018 was another one because we were seeing the economy rebounding, uh, US, Canada, and globally. So, But the odds aren't in their favor. And now we have a situation where uh, a lot of those happened with inflation a lot more acquiescent than it is right now. You have a big demand-supply imbalance. Demand's too strong. Supply is too weak. And monetary policy can't fix that, but it does need to slow down aggregate demand. So it absolutely has to slow down economic growth to, to keep inflation even under control. And uh, it's going to be a, a, a fine line. Right now, all the things that I look at uh, to tell me whether there's a recession imminent. And, and it worries me that so many people are saying, oh, we're on the cusp of recession. There are things there that make me nervous, like how poor consumer confidence is in the U.S. and other, some other countries. Uh, but my key indicators are suggesting in the next 12 months, uh, the odds of a recession are low. But as we move forward and short-term interest rates continue to go up and the yield curve, as measured from a three-month rate to a 10-year rate, is flat now. 
uh, that points towards a growing risk of a, a more severe economic slowdown uh, and potentially a recession. And um, I'm pretty agnostic about this at this point in time, but it certainly makes me extremely nervous about the outlook for markets and asset prices and portfolios uh, through the fall. John, a couple of things you're saying there I want to come back to. One is just how successful can the central bank be? Yes, they can restrict demand. Obviously, we can create a scenario in our heads where people just don't buy anything. But at the same time, will that change inflation? Because of the other thing you said, it's also a supply problem at this point. And again, in, uh, the Bank of Canada's got nothing to do with energy prices. That's not going to get solved. Food prices, that's not going to get solved. No, you're correct. Um Commodity prices will respond to global growth, uh, and global growth is going to slow, and that will help take some pressure off of them. But the fact of the matter is, is that demand has to be slowed more than normal because of these supply side constraints. So they're walking a tightrope. And you have countries, uh, and here's where I think there's a difference between Canada and the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., households are in pretty good shape. They've built up their debt again. But the fact of the matter is their balance sheets are in a lot better shape than ours on the household side. Uh, corporate balance sheets are, are in aggregate are stretched. Um, some are very good uh, across some select industries, but overall they're stretched. In Canada, they're both stretched badly. Uh, so countries like Canada are going to be much more sensitive to interest rates than the U.S. So you, know, you could have a decent outcome in the U.S. and globally where Canada has some significant problems. But we're walking, the, you know, we have an inflation problem. Uh, it's proven that there's more demand side pressure than most of us thought. And there's more supply side pressure than all of us expected. And it's, it's, it's going to be um, a real tight rope. And it's, I think it would be quite a high, an unlikely outcome based on history that we get through this without some form of quite bumpy landing, and I see that happening late next year or in 2024. And it keeps me very cautious on the path of um, stock prices, corporate bond spreads, and all that stuff right now. Well, yeah, that's an update on something you told us. You were going back uh, several months, and you said you were uh, certainly cautious and nervous uh, about what was going to happen in the stock market. That looks like a pretty good call right now. <laughs> and so maybe elaborate a little bit more. Are you equally uh, as nervous, let's say, or, or cautious is a good word? I mean, we're all about risk management here. So are there some sectors you're more worried about than others? And, and some you may say, hey, I've got a little list I've got going here on further decline. I might take some positions. Yeah, um, I think that we're, we're going through and we're completing the four-year cycle reset, and I think that it's a bit early to step in and be buying much of anything at this point in time. Uh, if I did buy anything, one of the areas, you know, I think that we're moving into an environment where inflation is probably going to be higher on a sustained basis. Central banks are going to have to be quicker to raise rates over the next decade than to cut rates, which is we've had the reverse of that for the past 20 years. And I think that's an environment where if I'm going to get in early, I want dividend growth type stocks. I want. I think the environment we're facing is more growth rather than value. Um, you know, if inflation is higher, growthy oriented stocks have done better than value oriented stocks because interest rates are going to re continue to reset higher. Uh, and I'm thinking more about market yields. And uh, I think that we're probably looking at a, a new range for 10 years that is going to be maybe two to five or two to six over the next decade, uh, potentially even higher. Um, so recessions won't see us get much below 2% on a 10-year, uh, and the boom periods could see us getting back to a point where uh, with even you know two to 4% inflation, you're going to have positive real yields. And I think moving back into a positive real yield environment, it's going to be key here. And I think that means you want growth. And so if I was to step in and do anything, I'd be buying kind of dividend growthy type things now where you had good track records. And if there's no dividend, there's no nothing to keep me happy over the summer uh, until we see prices reset. And I think that uh, one of the things I do see, which I quite like, is, uh, you know, I'm getting quite enamored with two year yields, uh, you know, that are two and a half percent on the sovereign level you know, up to three and a half percent as you move through the into a decent corporate. So I think there's some decent 
things there that will protect me and protect clients uh, and generate some return with safety. Uh, your... Sorry, I was just going to say, let's talk a little bit more about risk and about uh you know, the debt situation out there. And it has me thinking of Christine Lagarde, head of the European Central Bank, made a comment, uh, I think it was November, December last year, where she said, hey, look, uh, you know, for sovereign debts, uh, you know, we, we can't go broke because we can just simply print up the money to cover. And I think the handling of the pandemic sort of validates what she said there, that when there is a problem, central banks step in. When government has a problem, central banks can step in and do X. If the housing market has a problem, well, they did. They stepped in in March of 220 and said, hey, we'll guarantee any of the sort of mortgage-backed securities. So it looks to me like that side of the uh, – I'll let you comment on that, but it looks like that side of the people worried about sovereign uh, debt risk, well, that looks like what they're going to handle. They can always do the backstop if we create the money. Absolutely, they can. And um, I think unlike those proponents of spending all you want and financing it with money printing, the mon modern monetary theory people, that works great in a deflationary type environment, the kind we had in the 1930s and the kind we had last decade when fiscal policy wasn't all that supportive. Now the environment we're in is fiscal policy has been too excessive and now the credit system has been working better. And now you have inflation. You're getting, now you can print the money still and backstop the sovereign debt. But the fact of the matter is, is that the risk of seeing the inflation follow through is much higher now. And I think that, you know, and when we look at um, the investments we want to make over the longer run, and I'm thinking kind of 10 years here as we move into a, a potentially more inflationary environment. And the incentive is there, given how big the debt loads are, they're at World War II levels. Uh, actually. For society's benefit in the long run, actually a period of higher inflation, probably a good thing because you don't want to end up sorting it out with deflation. And, you know, bonds are not a good place to be. When I think about the attractiveness of bonds, I'm thinking about it until the fall, until the equity markets are doing better. But equities will outperform bonds um, over the next, I think, 10 years uh, after we sh shake things out. And growth-oriented equities and commodity-oriented equities are going to be the protection against inflation. And in the growth-oriented equity world, um, you know, we own some of the, the big tech names that don't generate a lot of uh, incomes uh, and dividends, but uh, they have the growth attributes. But for now, when if you're going to dip, for me, dipping the toe in early means buying something growthy with getting paid for being patient until the fall. Yeah, let's uh, also, you know, I, I talked earlier, and I think it's very important, by the way, people listening, uh, you know, always know what your time frame is. Are you talking long term, short, short term? And John's being very clear about that. But I'm just saying, as you listen, there's, you know, the time frame is very, very important. So I'm going to ask you a longer term question in that vein. Um, you know, we've been keen on commodities for two years. Uh, what's your take on it? So, for example, you can have a slowdown in the economy. That that will not boost the, uh, commodity prices, but then we'll get out of that. So if we were going to wake up, say, five or seven years from now, are you going to have been happy you were positioned in copper, positioned in nickel, uh, you know, oil, that kind of stuff? I think so. Um, I think I'd be equally as happy or happier in less, um, less commodity-oriented names. And I'm just, when I think about this cycle here, um, I'm, I'm still not 100% convinced we're in a new, what they would call a secular bull market for commodities or a super cycle. I certainly think the attributes are there uh, that we may be in the early stages of one, but we could still get one more head fake to the downside. And I'm looking at the the some of the broader commodity baskets. And I'm wondering if it's, is it 1989, which means we had one more big flush out or whether we're moving on. And I just wonder when it, the cycle does happen because of a lot, a lot of the technological disruptions that are happening, that people are banking on, you know, rare earth metals, some fossil fuels, is that there's so much technological disruption in the background. And Michael, you and I have talked about it on screen and offline about the, some of the technologies that are happening. You know, 
I, I, there's some big mining companies that are switching to hydrogen trucks. They can save a million liters of fuel a year on some of these things. So there's a lot happening and, and the tipping point could be a little quicker, but I, I think next five years, uh, commodities, I think, could do quite well. I think the growth-oriented equities in general will do quite well, and the private sector in general over governments and ownership over credit. Uh, first of all, your point about technology is so well made, and I hope people are listening, because you can get a scenario, and it's, we've lived a life of disruptive technologies, and there's no reason to suspect it won't be happening further in uh, we've had tons of technological advancement, of course, in, in the commodity sphere of, of extraction, et cetera, and processing, but there's nothing to suggest there won't be product switches, uh, which will change the demand, all of those things. I just think that's a risk factor that people don't pay enough attention to, so I'm glad you brought it forward. Hey, John, let me just finish with this, and I know it's, it's, it's too short a question or we don't have enough time. I want to talk about Canada in general. One of the things we rarely hear about, though, when we've taken on this level of sovereign debt, I think the irony is that uh, the bailout's going to come from oil, the most hated commodity in the country, and inflation. You know, governments benefit from inflation, especially when you're a heavy, heavy debtors do. But uh, I don't see much plan here for Canada to have growth as one of the rescue uh, or one of the fallback positions. Am I missing something? I just don't see our growth prospect at this point or our growth program. No, I, uh, I agree with you, and it's, um, it's, it's quite distressing. And uh, for me, it's not a partisan issue. When I look at all of these parties, you know, you know, I came of age as a professional analyst uh, when Mike Wilson was the finance minister and you were doing tax reform with the introduction, introduction of the goods and services tax, the introduction of the free trade agreement, and then the, under the Krechan government, the ratification of the North American free trade and the continuation of the tax reform. Um, I'm so depressed. I think that there are people in the mainstream parties out there who can lead us in both at the provincial and the federal level, but they're getting drowned out by a range of voices. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite discouraged by it all. Uh, and we talked about this before the federal election and I'm more discouraged now. We're in a provincial election here. We got a budget that to me was equivalent to Brian Peckford wanting to grow cucumbers in Newfoundland. And, uh, you know, I don't know who to vote for. I, I just, I wanted to put a communist party sign in the window to keep all of them away from my house. <laughs> well, again, you're talking about the Ontario election, but uh, just, you know, you've got company. I mean, I find it distressing how low down the priority list economic growth is. And, of course, uh, translating into personal finances from that. And, you know, I do a show uh, all the time here, and I find that really distressing. It's not a priority for most in the media, no politicians. You say no party has a, a really comprehensive growth profile, and it's not like it's particularly com uh, complicated. It's just not a priority for Canadians. And so I'm afraid I'm with you on that, and I think that catches up to us. I think it already is catching up to us. Poor policy is evident everywhere, whether we're talking about what diesel prices are what gas prices are, what food prices are. I mean, the fingerprints of politicians are all over those issues globally. And, uh, and unfortunately, the vulnerable pay the price. So just so you know, when you're sitting there feeling depressed, you got company down at this end of the country. Uh, John, thank you so much for finding time for us as usual. Real pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Take care. John Johnston is Chief Strategist for Davis Array. We got much more coming your way, so stay with us. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I like to repeat that we're in a monetary crisis because of my wishful thinking that at some point we'll get over our petty politics and wake up to the massive changes taking place in the monetary system. In order to help explain the impact of our major investment theme, it's well, it was since February 220, that was in order to protect yourself from the falling purchasing power of your paper dollar, one should own commodities. You know, I continue to ask this question. If you think about it, over the next five years, would you rather own paper, as in Canadian dollars, it's just paper, or U.S. dollars, any other currency, or would you rather own stuff like copper, oil, wheat, corn, 
I mean, I think you get the point. My shocking stat, though, focuses on China's answer. For the last several years, they've stopped buying U.S. Treasuries with their surplus trade dollars and instead have been buying commodities. Most recently, they've been negotiating deals with Russia for both oil and natural gas. And that solves the problem for both countries. I mean, Russia gets buyers outside of the West for its energy as the sanctions continue to ramp up. And of course, China gets a guaranteed supply, especially if Western sanctions are applied to them because of its intentions to take over Taiwan. Leave that for another day. But it brings me to my straightforward shocking stat. Are you ready? China represents about 20% of the world's population. Yet according to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, China is expected to have 69% of the globe's corn reserves in the first half of the crop year this year. They'll have 60% of its rice, 51% of its wheat. Their hoarding is putting significant upward pressure on prices. While at the same time, though, it insulates China from potential sanctions from the West, and social unrest at home, by the way, due to food shortages and price increases. I mean, keep in mind, Chinese officials are all too aware that food and the cost of food, you know, sparked the protest in 1989 in Tiananmen Square. But you should be aware of it. I was shocked by that. 20% of the population had no idea that they'd accumulate that level of reserves when you talk about corn, wheat, rice. Wow. You know, I've been thinking about uh, the oil market and the focus that we place on what the price of crude oil is, or, of course, the gasoline prices we get all the time. People may be aware of the diesel prices. But there's an aspect that I think that people have to understand, and that is this is a refinery problem more than it's actually the oil price increase problem. I've got Joseph Schachter with me, Schachter Energy Research. Correct. Uh, in Canada, we've shut down refineries everywhere the smaller ones, and uh, we've built these big, the big ones that are available in, you know, Fort Saskatchewan and Edmonton. Uh, you have in Sarnia, very big operations. In Quebec, you have very big operations. Uh, in St. John um, and in Newfoundland, you've got them, a smaller refinery in BC. Uh, so th we've removed a lot of the capacity in the industry. So the industry has, has not had the ability uh, to compete more aggressively because we have a you know more of a monopolistic situation. Just to show you the profitability of the industry, uh, Suncor in uh, Q1 of 2022 had 1.4 billion dollars of profits from R&M. That's up from 943, so up 48 percent. Um, Synovus had 85 percent increase in their R&M profits, and Imperial Oil a 33 percent increase in their refining profits. So again, a lack of competition and, um, and the higher utilization. Just to give you an example on the utilization, um, this week in the U.S., we don't get that on Canada's easily, 91.8% uh, for R&M, which is refining and marketing. So the refineries are running flat out. That's up from 90% a week ago and 863 um, a year ago. And then if you go two years ago, it was 69.4 during the uh, during the pandemic. So the higher utilization you go, and you're you know cracking the products, uh, that's going to create more profitability for the refining and marketing company. And of course, then they create the products that are in need: diesel, gasoline, jet fuel. Those are the highest value products out there. It's a, a couple of things on that. But so let me try and summarize it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. But the bottom line is. Uh, obviously, if crude oil prices go up, that does get reflected in refined products. But what's happened here is because they can't, uh, the demand is outstripped, you know, for many of these products, you know, a jet fuel shortage in the eastern United States, diesel shortage in the eastern U.S. Uh, so all of a sudden you say, hey, we got a lot of people as the economy reopens, you know, pushing those prices up because the refinery can't meet that demand. As you say, they're already running at 90, 95 percent. So they can't just all of a sudden produce more. So it's like any good. More demand comes up. Here's the good. Best presto prices go with it. Right. And then the logistics of where the refineries are and where the consumer is getting the product there through the pipeline system. Of course, if the pipelines are full up, then the price goes goes up as well. And then, of course, you're using 
you know, product to, to move it in the pipelines. So you're using uh, natural gas or you're using electricity or using whatever, all of those input costs to move it are going up as well. And that's why we may see $7 gasoline in the U.S., uh, you know, two fifty, two seventy-five dollars uh, a liter here in, you know, in, in places like B.C., Toronto and Montreal. Um, we're seventy in, in Calgary today. Uh, we could be two bucks this summer uh, because of, you know, if demand picks up um, and people want to drive a little bit more and the refineries really can't produce anymore, uh, then, of course, you know, our price becomes the allocator, as we've as you as you and I talk about all the time in terms of supply and demand. Uh, that's the ration uh, rationing process price. And then we come, uh, let's say uh, anybody said, oh, looks like this is a heck of a business right now. The margins are great, you know, and they believe that, you know, as emerging markets come through, crude prices are going to stay up because we have structural problems there. But, you know, it's not a case of just saying, hey, let's get two new refineries in Canada, one east, one west. I mean, the amount of money involved is huge, it seems to me, and the, the time it would take. I would think it's the approval process that's going to be mm -hmm. the problem. Do, do you want a, an expansion of a refinery in Burnaby? Do you want one, uh, you know, in, near Toronto? There, you know, on on uh, you know, but I'm not sure where where the refineries are in the northern part of Toronto. Uh, you know, Sarnia may be a different case. They may be willing to do it. Uh, Montreal, of course, do you want one? You know, near downtown, to, you know, Montreal. I think it's the logistics of of the political system, the environmental approval system, getting the land. Um, getting the approval to move pipelines of crude to the refinery. Uh, I think we have a no system in Canada, um, as we've had with all the LNG. You and I have talked about a decade ago that there could be 12 LNG plants right now in BC, and we're just building the first one, and it won't be ready till 2025. Um, the process of, of, of building a refinery versus an LNG plant, you'd think that the LNG would be a lot quicker. So if, if you want to know, can we build another refinery, I would say, given how difficult it is to get an LNG plan on, I would say it's almost impossible to get an expansion or a growth of a greenfield uh, refinery in Canada, given the, the current system that we have in place right now for approvals. And, and not much different in the States and maybe worse in Europe. You know, I mean, so these problems are going to persist. Um, the other thing is that who the heck would invest in one? Because if that time frame, let's 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 give it a green light and say you went through a, an approval process that didn't get reversed eight years later, but we went through the approval process. Now you've got to build it. Well, my point is, who's got that time frame? Because we've proven that these, I agree with you, projects can't get done. But even if I get optimistic, they can. It takes so long that your return on capital isn't there. The environment changes. The, I meant the political attitude changes. I mean, we're talking about a product that uh, a year ago, for five consecutive or six for seven consecutive years, we said we don't want any. Yeah, <laughs> you know? we, we may not be able to get new plants built, new facilities built in um, Europe or in Canada, the US, many of the OECD countries, but the expansion that we're seeing of the teapot domes in China, massive expansion there, massive expansion of refining capacity in Russia. India is expanding at a very rapid rate. Uh, you know, the Ambani Reliance uh, Group uh, are expanding rapidly. And the biggest refinery in the world is now in India. Uh, and so they may end up where, we, where the, uh, the oil gets shipped to these countries because we have not in my backyard attitudes, and then those, uh, then they'll ship us the products we need, um, be it propane, be it jet fuel, be it whatever, uh, simply because of the NIMBY attitude that we have in 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 Canada, North America, and uh, and uh, in Europe. I, I don't want to get off track or digress uh, too far, but I, I think it's another aspect that people don't understand. There's different types of oil. There's light oil, there's heavy oil. Those, uh, that type of oil, each type produces different style of refined products. So uh, I, I know, G give us the uh, economics 101 on that. Okay. Light oil uh, is, of course, the highest grade crude. So, you know, 40 degree API uh, oil, uh, it's easier to break down into gasoline, jet fuel, diesel, uh, and it doesn't have much of the asphalt in it. You go to a barrel of heavy oil, which is 8 to 10 degree, 12 degree oil. It's that heavy stuff that you see, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the oil sands. And that can be broken down and create a lot of asphalt products, 
you know, road construction and things which we need. But the amount that can create the high value products, jet fuel, gasoline, um, you know, propane, um, you know, di- you know, diesel, those things can't be made as much from heavy oil. And so the problem for Canada is we produce a lot of heavy oil. And a lot of our heavy oil now goes through pipelines, you know, through the uh, through the Enbridge line, um, you know, three into the, the Midwest and then south into the big Gulf Coast refineries. So from Chicago south, we get we, we end up moving our our uh, product and uh, we've we've benefited by two to three million barrels a day of heavy oil from our oil sands and from our thermal oil uh, SAG-D projects there. The problem is Biden administration Uh, This week has changed the rules with Venezuela, saying that Venezuela now can sell to Europe at any time. So Repsol, which is, of course, Spain and any which is, I believe, the the Italian company are now able to take Venezuelan crude. No problems, no sanctions, no nothing else. And Chevron, which is, of course, the massive U.S. company, is now being allowed to uh, work out a relationship again with Venezuela. So the Biden administration to take on Russia is willing to do a deal with the devils of Iran and Venezuela with no political change, with no uh, give and take, um, because they want the barrels. And so what I worry about is that Canada... If this Venezuela door opening goes farther and a million or two million barrels of Venezuelan crude come up, we're the losers because we're the ones who benefited when Venezuela got shut down. Venezuela to ship crude from there to the Gulf Coast is a lot easier, a lot cheaper than us sending crude by uh, pipeline or by rail from Canada. So, again, we have to watch this Venezuela thing very carefully for the impact on the integrated uh, companies, Suncor, Sonovas, Imperial Oil, et cetera, in Canada. Well, that's obviously something, I mean, of great importance. We'll keep an eye on it here. In the meantime, though, i got to thank Joseph. I thank you for your time. People can go to Schachter Energy Research for more. Good stuff. It's fascinating to see how many eyes are on the real estate market. I think for obvious reasons. I mean, we've got uh, you know a huge number of homeowners throughout the country. But when you get a bump in interest rates, you get the bump or more than a bump in mortgage rates. You see what's happened south of the border. People want to know what's going on here. Well, we're going to tell you in a second. But I also want to give you a heads up. There's been a big move in China that will have a direct impact on real estate in Canada. I'll get Ozzy to talk about that in a moment. But first, Ozzy, let's get a continued take on what you're seeing in the overall market. Have they managed to choke off the Canadian real estate market with mortgage increases? There's no question that when you have a stress test at 6.2% and the average five-year term now well over 4%, you know, very difficult to even get four. And just for the average person, you could have gotten a point and a half just seemingly a few months ago, has had a big impact. No question. Look, if I'm the first time buyer and I can't buy, and I can't buy your house, and if you can't then buy the next house, it just filters through the, through the economy. But it's right across the United States too. Reddit and Redfin, they're reporting uh, sales are slowing, uh, mortgage applications are down. And then when you take a look at us here in Canada, we have people, people uh, making all sorts of uh, um, reports from Toronto that we have seen sales uh, down. Actually, Canadian Real Estate Association called it 25% decline. And you and I talked a few months ago that in Surrey, for instance, single-family home sales were down every single month over 35%. So it's not news, but it seems to be accelerating. Well, it seems the goal, obviously, as we've talked about on the show, is to literally change people's psychology across all markets. You know, that the, the so-called wealth effect, you know, as my house was going down, I felt pretty darn good about things. And now I'm not suggesting that the, it's the housing. I think it's the stock market that provides you with such a vivid, uh, you know, measuring stick every single day. And it's not like it's been uh, tame. You know, 1,100 points down grabs even uh, the nonchalant uh, person uh, interested in that stuff. It's grabs their psychology, and it's going to be interesting. But one of the things you've pointed out over the years, and I don't want to be a cheerleader here uh, for real estate, but it is a fact that if you look at some of the stronger markets, uh, you know, Ozzy, as you've looked at Vancouver as just one example, every decline, and we've had several declines of significance, always met with higher prices, and it really didn't take that long. Yeah, and that's really sort of my argument forever, that we just 
as long as we keep on printing a heck of a lot more money than we earn or can collect in taxes, that always settles in hard assets, and, and you've talked about it forever, whether it's hard assets in the in in, in uh, commodities or paintings for that matter, certainly always real estate was the place to be. But right now there is a fear factor that we haven't had uh, in, in addition, and that is that the crypto losses are absolutely astounding. I mean, we're talking a trillion dollars in six months in in one uh, one entity. And this uh, Terra Luna, and I think you talked about it with Mike, my goodness gracious, in one day, it was down $10 billion in a week, $50 billion. And when we talk this number sort of very quickly, it doesn't seem to matter, but somebody lost it. And it's not you and I that lost it because we weren't speculating in this. I'm concerned it's the, the millennials and the 25 to 45 year old, and they were our buyers and that'll have an impact. And again, even if you weren't involved in those markets, it's hard not to take notice. I mean, I know myself, when you get huge declines, uh, people who are not pers personally involved ask me about them, you know, and that's where you start changing the psychology for people. So it's just interesting, uh, you know, uh, and as you say, maybe it's coming out of headlines in the States where I think they've, they, they're going to be shocked how fast they did slow their market down. You know, yeah, and I, I know that's a broad statement, but they did slow the market. Look at that, as you told us about uh, for the last couple of weeks, look at their 30-year mortgage. You know, 95%, 90, 95% of their mortgages are in that 30-year range. Wow, they got whacked by, by more than doubling. Yeah, no question. And now you have reports like there's a lawyer in Toronto and some realtors in Toronto that's saying there's a little bit of buyer's remorse coming into the market. This particular lawyer, Mark Morris, said that well, he had seen nine cases where buyers actually wanted to back out of a deal, and he had three sellers keen to use legal channels to keep people in. Now, I haven't heard that much about that in Vancouver. We still have sort of a market that has showing uh, if, it's, if it's priced right, there's still a lot of people interested. But that, that is part of it, that when things slow down, people get concerned. And, of course, you know, that's not the case in Calgary and Edmonton, and that's been buoyed by, you know, the huge jump in oil and gas prices you know so uh, what i always find interesting ozzy and i don't have any proof for this this is completely my anecdotal evidence is you know the bank of canada watches toronto and hamilton in that region a lot closer than they watch to other parts of the country but you're right so when there's a slowdown in toronto or things change in toronto that gets noted uh, but let me come to something completely different here and that's news out of china that uh, I saw that the Communist Party of China, it was Xi Jinping, saying they want to stop their top officials from owning foreign assets. They wanted them no more foreign assets. I think they're looking at Russia. They're looking at the sanctions that they put against Russia. Uh, maybe they're uh, not. Maybe they are still thinking of going into Taiwan. It's just when. I mean, they've said it so often. But I thought that was fascinating, and I thought immediately of. I wonder what the impact on Canadian, especially get out to Vancouver there, the Vancouver market. Well, the interesting thing is it's sort of an unintended consequence of the sanctions is that the oligarchs of the world, never mind if they're Russian, any oligarch who has their money in US dollars in any country that is of Western origin, they're going to think twice to put their money there. That will have a huge impact on foreign exchanges and where people keep their money. And China has tons and tons of US dollars. I doubt very much that they're going to stay in them. Anyways, that's a different thing. But Mr. Xi wants to minimize the geopolitical risks for his party members, and he's taking the leading cadres, especially senior people, must pay attention to family discipline and ethics. And by that, he means in 2014, they had over 3,000 people that they found where they, they moved their money out, they, they put their families, say, to Vancouver. Now, you say, okay, so why would it matter? Because Trudeau's already closed the border for two years for them anyhow. That's not the point. The point is he now wants them to sell. And so now here we have an additional group of people that, you know, into this market that might be slowing down that are now going to sell for totally outside reasons. And I don't know how much it is, but even if it was just 1%, there are hundreds and hundreds of homes that might just be sold for not local reasons at all. In the same way, though, <clears throat> excuse me, they bought for non-local reasons. I remember all of the talk when you had, especially in the luxury end of the market, we had people saying that's not affordable. Look at all those old statistics. And I would sit there going, no, you don't get it. 
They're talking about financial diversification, putting it outside of China, having the safety of having it outside of the reach of the Chinese Communist Party. And this is just, it could be happening in reverse. We'll have to watch closely. But that statement certainly got people's attention when they're, especially they're talking about if your spouse or your children own the property, you may stay still be, uh, you know, in China. But if your spouse or children have the property outside, we're looking at you too. Well, and it's funny, they sell their block promotions of senior people. They actually, you know, they, they have been known to throw people in jail who are against the party doctrine. Now, look at how much under attack the tech sector in China is. Mind-boggling the losses. We talk about our stock market losses, Chinese stock markets are incredibly down. So all of together, the party is zeroing in. What to me is surprising, you have mentioned it several times, you mentioned today, Taiwan, right? Now, what are they planning to do if they're worried that the U.S. and other Western powers impose sanctions against Chinese leaders and their relatives? Why would they do that? Only if they did an invasion like Russia has been doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much more to come, but it's just, you know, it's an international world. It's not just domestic. And, of course, uh, we know that there's been a big influence coming out of China on our real estate market. So that's why I thought this uh, pronouncement by the Chinese communists with the bigger thing in mind of watching what's happened in Russia and the sanctions and trying to make themselves less vulnerable to it. Uh, I think it's fascinating. And of course, we'll keep an eye on it. And you will do so on OzBuzz too, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, thanks for finding time. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. And I want you to remember, Mark Twain said, never argue with stupid people. They'll drag you down to their level and you, then they beat you with experience. <laughs> I just feel like I heard you describing political debates. Thanks, Ozzy. Ozbuzz.ca. Hey, let's go live to the trading desk, and there is a lot to talk about. Uh, Victor Dare joins me now. Vic, there's a few things that jump out at me, and one is that this week seemed to be sort of a, a very small reversal in what we've been seeing. You know, for example, the U.S. dollar maybe fell a little bit. You know, interest rates maybe came down a little bit. But all of that seems to me, especially the interest rate side, is what people are, are interested in. And that is, they had, all of it was anticipation. I mean, the Fed's only moved, Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada, Federal Reserve's only moved a, a quarter point, then a half point, And they say they're going to do more. Well, the bond market didn't wait for that. They reacted like, man, that's happened. Sure. Beginning in uh, October, November of last year, the credit market was discounting that the Fed would have to move while the Fed was still talking transitory. So, yeah, they were well ahead. And it looks in a way like maybe we've even seen peak tightening priced into the market, given that uh, bond, mark, bond yields have come down here the past two weeks. I mean, they're looking ahead into the future into March, June of next year and seeing interest rates not going any higher once the Fed gets their pre-programmed uh, interest rate uh, uh, boosts in. You think that's because, I mean, we're start, also starting to see that, hey, if the Federal Reserve wanted to cool demand, it looks like it's happened in the U.S. housing market. But the ones that jumped out at me this week was look at those stats eh, uh, about the shoppers or lack of in Walmart and in Target. I mean, those are two sort of staples of the American retail scene. And maybe it's already slowing the economy. I remember last week uh, I was talking about we saw a substantial increase in the amount of consumer credit card debt. And I was saying to you, this looks like people are running out of cash, so they're buying stuff on their credit card, and that's not going to last. It's important because the consumer sector is 70% of the American market. In other words, if the consumer is having a hissy fit here, nothing else matters. And certainly that's what it looked like with the Walmart and uh, Target results that came out this week. I mean, their stocks just got slammed. Well, you make such a good point there that, you know, there's no economy like it in the world where the consumer plays such a prominent part. You know, Canada's an export economy. So, yes, ours goes up because of oil right now. And, of course, housing, too, et cetera. But theirs is far broader based in that consumer side of things. And as I say, I'm not sure. They certainly were worse than the analysts' expectations when you look at, you know, a stalwart like Walmart or a stalwart like Target. Uh, and that's despite the fact that, you know, let's say they had raised their prices. So you can sell the same number of widgets, 
But if you just report the total retail sales, that looks a lot better. But you take out inflation and it looks even worse. So, yeah, I'm wondering if that bond market isn't sort of saying, hey, maybe we get to that sort of recessionary uh, peak or, you know, that teeter-totter, that balancing act. We get there maybe a little sooner than certainly the Federal Reserve and most analysts had thought. Well, that's the that's the playing with fire aspect of what's happening here. The Fed wants to uh, make financial conditions tougher or tighter. Uh, a falling stock market plays into that. But the, the playing with fire aspect is, you know, they think that they hope anyway that they can engineer a soft landing. It's kind of like cool inflation down without you know, tr- uh, triggering a recession. The, the thing that was important about Walmart and Target is that the folks that are spending there are not spending on sort of discretionary items. Oh, let's uh, let's buy something fancy that we don't really need. No, this is stuff. This is like consumer staples. So when those folks are when that that aspect of the market, it, that's where, let's say, a lot of people that have been worried here have been hiding out in defensive stocks like Walmart and Target. So when maybe this just shows us that in this condition, there is nowhere to hide. Well, the thing that I also just I don't want you to go without commenting on this. The thing that worries me is any time from my experience, and unfortunately I'm old, so it's a long experience. The thing that worries me most is liquidity problems and an unraveling of sort of a credit cycle. And uh, I see signs that we're doing both. You know, like, yes, the NASDAQ's coming back to the same sort of price-earnings ratio, their 20-year average. So is S&P. So is the TSX, actually below its 20-year average for uh, price-earnings ratio. But, no, we still have to deal with the size of the debt that's out there, the size of the credit that went into the stock market, you know, and the borrowing, now that rates are rising. I'm not convinced that's done, and I think that's having an impact on liquidity. Well, for sure. And, you know, Chairman Powell did come out and say two weeks ago, and I'll let me paraphrase, you know, listen, folks, there's going to be some pain here. We're good. We're trying to get inflation down and it's not going to be easy. And some people are going to suffer. You know what that really means is lose their jobs. But he said, if we don't do this, there's going to be a hell of a lot more pain if we don't get inflation under control. So we've got to do it. And that gets to the old saying about don't fight the Fed. If you think, and some folks do, and they may be right, if you think that the Fed is going to cave at the first squeal of pain that they hear out there, well, they probably won't this time. And that's, I think, what has really caused the major indices to be down here for seven weeks in a row. There's like, holy mackerel, we're not fooling around here. This is serious. Yeah, especially against the backdrop of how much debt there is out there. They wanted to change psychology. You know, as I talked to John Johnson about earlier, you know, there's only so much uh, central bank can do because they don't control food prices, the energy shortage, all of those things. They're just on the demand side, meaning I'm going to raise rates so you don't borrow money and go demand more goods. So, yeah, I think it's a fascinating time. Hey, just one more thing before you go quickly, Vic. Um, You know, one of the things that you've talked about before is people have to appreciate that, for example, if I'm a pension, fund, I've got certain ratios I've got to keep. Maybe it's 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Well, after you've had the gyrations we've been experiencing in the last couple of months, I, I know that you wrote this on victordare.ca is that there's going to be some, maybe some buying power there coming in because they've got to get back to that balance they're, they're obligated to do. Well, one of the things I see here, Mike, is that we're going into the end of the month and we're expecting mutual funds and pension funds to be net buyers of stock as they try to come back into their preset balances as to how much capital they've got located to different markets. So there's that. There's also extremely, extremely bearish sentiment across the markets here. And yeah, you know, there's a possibility we could have a bounce. I don't, you know, the sentiment is so bearish you know, like you and I are talking, if people just listen to the first part of our, our conversation here, they would think that, yeah, this market's going to go to zero. But no, not at all. You know, we will have some ups and downs. We, we've had a, a tremendous run in the stock market for nine years. We're having a correction. And, you know, we'll see where it goes from here. But, you know, I don't think we're on a one-way street to zero. And you can get more by going to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. And uh, Vic, in the meantime, I guess it's a long weekend, so you should go enjoy it. 
I will. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know what? And it's a federal government double header. And it's courtesy of the terrific research done by Blacklock's report. And they really do do a good job. But why should you care about it, by the way? Well, how about because it's your money? First up, a quick reminder of Public Health Canada's pandemic performance. You know, on February 13, 2020, a memo entitled National Emergency Strategic Stockpile was written just a month after, or rather before the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. Well, public health agency managers stated, we want to be as ready as possible. Although they didn't make any mention of the fact that they'd shut down the early pandemic warning system. They made the remarkable decision to throw away 8.9 million pieces of personal protective equipment because they didn't want to continue paying the cost of three warehouses to store it. But we're talking about throwing away high-grade masks and uh, and gowns. And then they went on to ship, by the way, to provinces, date-expired goods. You know, a a 2021 audit commissioned by Public Health Canada itself entitled Lessons Learned from the Public Health Agency of Canada's COVID-19 Response cited the agency for, in quotes, confusion, limited public health expertise, and capacity gaps. As Blacklock's notes, auditors found management was so disorganized, it actually sent most employees home in the first days of the pandemic. The whole agency lacked, in quotes, the needed breadth and expertise to lead. Which, by the way, it resulted in things like the managers losing $106 million that they paid out in advance for rush orders of those same kind of medical supplies they had disposed of, and they never got the equipment. It never was delivered. I think Dire Straits uh, did a song about that called Money for Nothing, or were they referring to the government's response? And this is the goofy part, which was to award bonuses paid by the taxpayer to 88% of the executives of Public Health Canada. In total, 68 executives, 10 employees, received an average of $18,600 in performance bonuses. Performance? Say what? But that's not all. 322 executives and employees of Department of Health who were supposed to be supervising public health agency also received an average of 13200 in bonuses. And speaking of money for nothing with your tax dollars, that's the second part of our double header that you've got to be aware of. The Parliamentary Budget Office reported this week that despite the fact that the Department of Indian Affairs, now going back to 2017, they split it in two one called Crown Indigenous Relations, the other Indigenous Services, which included, by the way, a combined annual budget increase, increase, estimated somewhere under $5 million, and an, an additional 3,700 employees. Although a separate government report, by the way, said, no, the growth in employees was much higher than that, up to double. But what did we get for that extra money, for that growth in the bureaucracy? Well, In the words of the recently released Parliamentary Budget Office report, in quotes, the analysis conducted indicates the increased spending did not result in a commensurate improvement in the ability of these organizations to achieve the goals they had set for themselves. Now, come on, if you're one of the many Canadians that's sincerely concerned for our Indigenous people, you can't let this go. Progress can't be made with this degree or this lack of accountability and the degree of government incompetence, it's been cited relentlessly by a string of auditor generals. But come on, as I say, we can finish the program just humming the words to money for nothing. Look, I appreciate you listening. I hope you do join us on Money Talks Tweets and Michael Campbell's Facebook, uh, Money Talks Facebook, but also remember the Special Olympians. Go out and have a terrific weekend. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet. 